This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash freelancer show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerdhost.com. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your clients' web applications? Nerdhost.com is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new sign-up referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd and enter freelancer into the contact form as a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 193 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello. Jonathan Stark. Hello. Reuben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. By the time you get this, we had a great time at Freelance Remote Conf. Um, <laughs> Ruby Remote Conf's the next one. And this week, we're going to be talking about how to create new forms of value for clients. This was suggested by Philip. And I'm curious, Philip, what what exactly did you have in mind? Do you want to expand on this a little bit? Sure. I think I was just the person who wrote it down in in GitHub. Uh, But anyway, here's what we were thinking. A lot of us in the world of freelancing, our starting point is our skills. And then we try to kind of build from that and find some overlap with what clients value and we'll, we'll pay money for. And I, I think if that's how we think about things, it kind of boxes us in a little bit. So uh, we all thought it would be great to have a sort of a roundtable conversation about how do you find new forms of value, maybe ones you haven't thought of yet or ones that are connected to your your skill base, but just you know, are, are new to you. How do you validate those? How do you make sure there are things clients will pay money for, uh, you know, and how do you ultimately deliver those? Aid? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. the question. Just to jump into the the void there, I feel like it's kind of simple on the surface, but it, it may be deceptively simple. It seems to me like thinking back over is like my experience. I would say that it almost always comes from a conversation, like a, a casual conversation with a client 
and never from just something I dream up. So it's like if you have these kind of moments in a client engagement, which I have a lot because I'm mostly just talking to them and not in my room coding where we're getting together to have a meeting with maybe a group of outside developers that they're using and we're going to go over some sort of project roadmap or something. There's a lot of downtime to kind of just shoot the breeze with the client. And that's where it almost always comes from. You know, they'll they'll just be mentioning something and either it'll be a sort of specific problem that maybe I don't address or uh, it's something that I do address, but they could use a solution in a different package, like a different format delivered in a different format. So, so the first example is kind of like, you know, they come, they say, geez, you know, it would be great if we had someone dedicated to just doing application architecture for us. And then I would say, oh, wow, you know, I'm not specifically offering, you know, I offer application architecture in general underneath the retainer that I have with this client. But now that they're asking for that thing specifically, or they mentioned something about how valuable that particular thing is, it's too late for me to offer it to them because they sort of get it under the umbrella of my overall retainer. But I could say, oh, that might be a really good one-off product that I can charge less for and present to other people that are in a similar situation. And then that's like the new thing, like they trigger me onto a new thing. And then the flip side or the other option there is that they'll say something like, man, it would be so great if we could get this as a series of videos instead of being here live in person so that we could watch it on our own time and have like an asynchronous uh, or self-paced learning exercise instead of having to get everybody in a room at the same time. So I could be like, oh, wow, that's, that's exactly the same thing I'm doing. But instead of presenting it to people in person, I could record it and make it available to the customer. So it's like a packaging thing for a solution that I already provide or a more specific offering that I don't yet provide. Yeah, what what you said about these things coming out of conversations with clients really rings true with me. I was probably about a year, year and a half ago teaching more or less two Python courses. Like there was one there was intro and there was one that was advanced. And what companies call it internally is a whole other mess and interesting story. And as I was speaking to people who were in my courses, some of them who were too frustrated because it was too fast and some because it didn't touch on some of the topics they needed. And sometimes also just me, I would see how people were in class that we weren't getting through some of the topics they want to with enough depth. And so what I would do is I'd say, well, what if I would just break out these topics into separate courses? And each time I've done that, it's been successful and the clients have gone wild. Like they're very happy with it. So the first thing I did this with was uh, regular expressions. There was just no time to easily teach that during another course. I would do it for two hours. People's brains would be melting all over the floor. It was a real mess. And, and I and like basically no one was satisfied with it. So I said, okay, let's remove it from the advanced course, put it into its own course. And people have been very happy. And similarly with, um, now I have one for non-programmers. And that, that's a, something we can also talk about a bit. It's sort of an upsell to new populations. Because until now, I've been teaching programmers. And I said, well, a lot of these companies have non-programmers who are sort of kind of jealous or interested in programming. And no one, but no one is teaching programming courses to those people. So I can just completely corner the market there. And I now have, I don't know, three, four, five of these Python for non-programmers scheduled over the next few months that have filled up right away. So, but it's all coming from talking to people. It's all coming from what are you here for? What are you interested in? What do you want to get out of this? Um, and how can I repackage what I've got or learn something new to give it to you that you'll want to buy it? 
I think an interesting way to go deeper into that is to ask the question, how do you create more conversations with clients? Yeah. Because that really, that seems to be the, you know, the machine that produces these ideas about new forms of value. And to, just to give context, when I started out freelancing, it's not that I tried to avoid talking to clients. It's that I viewed it as an imposition on their time. And so I tried to minimize it. And so for people who maybe are in that sort of way of seeing things, how can they think about having more conversations without it being like a, a diminishing the client relationship somehow? I have an idea. Let's <laughs> <You could do webinars. laughs> do a webinar and ask for a lot of Q&A. Interesting. Yeah, I've experimented <laughs> with that. And it, it is like digging a hole in your yard and finding an oil well there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, one other thing that I've done is just open my time up for podcast listeners. And I'm sure you could do the same thing for other audience members or former clients or anything like that, where it's just, hey, look, I'm going to do, you know, 30 minutes of essentially free consulting. I'm going to ask you a few questions. You're welcome to ask me a few questions. And yeah, just keep track of what what you're getting. I mean, I've decided to write a book on how to find a job as a programmer. And the reason is, is because I keep getting asked over and over and over and over and over again. You know, obviously, this is a problem that a lot of people are thinking about. And so it's something that I can solve. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. I The same thing happened with like, I've written a few books, but the most popular one by far stemmed out of the sort of online conversation that was taking place that I was a participant in, but no one was really writing about it at the book level. And mm-hmm. I was, I was just super excited about it and wrote up a draft and it really, it just caught on. It's worth pointing out, you know, in my original description there, I was talking about having extemporaneous conversations with existing clients. But if you know who your target market is, or at least roughly, or you're in a tribe of some kind, you can just sort of pick up on these things. It doesn't necessarily need to be you initiating it or you talking with an existing client. It could be potential clients or leads or people that you just reach out to in a target market, but enough that you can talk to, you know, four or five people and start to see a pattern that, huh, you know, it seems like this thing comes up with everyone. Right. Seeing those patterns... We're hearing those patterns that, that's so useful. And whether it comes out of conversations or just sort of putting the other comments you hear people make. One way to do the conversation, I've done this sometimes with my uh, consulting company, consulting clients, like when I'm doing project work or software work, is say, well, you know, where do you think you're going over the next six to eight months? Like, where's the business going? And then they'll sort of describe, well, we're trying to do features A, B, and C and reach out to markets D, E, and F. And then I can say, well, I can help you to do some of that. Or A and B are super easy for me to implement technically. But C, that's going to require some more time. Maybe if we map that out, we can break it down a little more. And I think they're generally very appreciative that you're thinking about what their needs are. And out of that conversation then can come um, a plan for moving forward where you're getting more work, but they are you know, more than getting their money's worth. Well, and that's the thing. And you can usually tell, you mentioned to them, well, I've been thinking about writing a book or I've been thinking about putting together this course or I've thinking been thinking about putting together a productized service that provides X, Y, and Z. And you can gauge their uh, level of excitement over that pretty quickly and go, oh, wow, I think they'd pay double what I was thinking I'd charge. Or, wow, you know, I've had like four people just about crap their pants when I say, I'm going to put together this product. And, you know, rather than the, yeah, that sounds real nice, you're, you know, 
well, where do I sign up? Where do I pay? Oh, that would be so great. It would save me all these problems and hassles. You know, you can gauge pretty quickly where that value is. Yeah, I had a coaching student the other day describe a, a new productized service that he dreamed up. We've been trying to come up with a productized service for him and it wasn't easy. And he dreamed one up and said it to me. And I was like, I'll buy that right now. You know, I immediately knew that it was a good one. Yep. And yeah, you you can tell right away. If somebody is like, I have to take my money, shut up and take my money. Because yeah. people will be, you know, you have to kind of watch out. You know, if, if Amy Hoy was on the line, she'd probably be rolling her eyes because people are nice and they'll be polite to you and they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea you have for that business or that product. But there's a difference between that and somebody who's genuinely excited. And if you're, I don't want to use the word skeptical, but if you're paying attention really to their reaction and you're not just looking for any kind of validation of the idea, if you're generally interested in proving the hypothesis because there's maybe three other things you could do, then your BS meter will be attuned enough, I think, to distinguish between someone who's just being polite and someone who's actually excited about the thing. One of the things I've thought about uh, structuring into client follow-up in my own business is just doing like a six-month health check. So after, you know, I'm done working with a client, just schedule a six-month follow-up. And that would be like a, you know, like a one-hour free consultation for them to check in and see how things are going. And, and I mean, that's also an opportunity to hopefully sell more services if it's really needed. But I can see that applying to a lot of things, something where you kind of are checking in on the health of what you've built or created with a client. And, and that may, you know, lead to sort of new new ways that you can provide value for them. I do something similar on my email list in that I specifically ask people at various points in their journey with me on my email list, what would success look like for you? What's what's your biggest pain point in general? Where are you stuck with this particular issue of lead generation? And those questions often yield very uh, valuable responses that I think point to new forms of value that I could be creating. Yeah, I do the same thing in my list and it practically writes the emails for me where you just say, hey, you know, do you have any more questions about this or do you have questions about that? And that turns into an upcoming email and it almost creates this sort of delayed chain reaction of a drip campaign and then can easily spin into product ideas. You know, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, different forms of packaging earlier, and mm -hmm. I'd love to explore that because I, I think that's a that's an easy to miss way to create new value. And I'll give some examples. I think we've all read at least one of Alan Weiss's books, but if you read more than one of his books, you will see that a lot of the information is very similar, uh, but each book has maybe a, a particular focus. So mm -hmm. 20, 30% of the content is different or is more tightly focused on the subject of the book. And I'm wondering if that concept could be applied to, you know, services or, or products or whatever. Mm, I, I absolutely think so. That I wasn't thinking that when I said it before, but that's certainly another way to package it where he, where you will, uh, I think, I think you kind of use the term localize the experience or the, or your expertise into a language, a, a business language, not like, I don't even know what to call it, a language language, right? You know, not like Japanese, a, a natural language, so a human sure. language. Thank you. The educated one in the room speaks up. <laughs> I speak human uh, sometimes. <laughs> so to, to sort of localize it into terms that make sense to the audience that you're focused on. So that's certainly one thing, but there's a more subtle way to do it, which is what Alan Weiss 
uh, does that you're describing, which is that he changes the focus to be specifically oriented to the needs of a particular audience or focusing on a particular problem that the audience needs solved. So like some books will be specifically about proposals. Other books will be specifically about value pricing. Other books are specifically about setting up your consulting business in the first place. And like you said, I mean, a lot of the stuff is cut and paste identical to a previous book, but he'll go more in depth about a, the, the focus, whatever the focus is. And I think that's actually valuable. And I've found that reading multiple books when that, you know, when, when the language changes slightly, the focus changes, or maybe I grew in the interim, but sometimes it'll make something click with me that did not click before. But what I was talking about prior to that was more like changing just something really tactile about the deliverable. So you could say, package up the same expertise that you have about, say, uh, value pricing, let's just say. You could package up that same expertise as a book uh, for someone who consumes data better in that way. Or you could package it up as a one-on-one -on -one phone call. And you might say the exact same thing or more or less the exact same thing. You're certainly tapping into the same reservoir of expertise that you have or the same body of knowledge that you have, but you are delivering it in a way that is in a package, if you will, that's more appropriate to someone's circumstances. And of course, you can price it appropriately. So if you, know, if you write a book, you're probably not going to be able to sell it for more than 50 bucks. And even that might be a stretch. But if you, you know, you're selling a one-on-one -on -one phone call, you could easily get 400 bucks, 500 bucks. Even, you know, I'm sure Ellen always charged 5,000 bucks for a phone call because that's not a leveraged delivery. That's like a intensely specific, private, one-on-one, -on -one, customized question and answer session. So, you know, I was thinking more along those lines where, where you've got this body of knowledge you're sitting on top of, this expertise that you have, and you deliver it. You make it available, let's put it that way. You make it available in a bunch of different formats that allow you to, to offer it at different price points, for example, where you can have lower-priced, low-touch offerings where people maybe sign up for a, a video course or they buy a book or an ebook or a video series or whatever, and you can price those things relatively low uh, but still deliver value to the people who buy them. Or you can do these sort of high touch things, which is mostly where I get my income from, where I'm just getting paid to be on retainer. So people can contact me around the clock to ask very specific questions about, you know, mobile strategy or whatever their, whatever their mobile concerns are. You know, I think an interesting example of that in the world of code is uh, if you go to creditcardjs.com, it's, it's that it's that sort of thing brought to life. So that would be, I think, be a good example for listeners to check out someone who sort of figured out some best practices around designing a credit card payment form, just packaged up their code and made it available for sale. So in, in that example, they could probably do a consultation for many, many thousands of dollars, or you can spend, let's see what the price is here. Yeah, 299 bucks for a a single website to license their code. And they could probably, if they wanted, produce maybe, uh, you know, like a 20-page PDF that has all the design principles that go into this and sell that for a lower price point. And that would be a great example of exactly what you're talking about, different packaging of essentially the same knowledge and insight, intellectual property, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> TM. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's done for you versus DIY at the most basic level. Here's another question I have about this topic, not necessarily for Jonathan, just for anybody. Uh, I, I talk to a lot of software developers who, especially if they're sort of in the FTE world, they feel like they're kind of at, at, at a great distance from useful information about how they could create more value. Like they're just kind of in the trenches coding. And how do they get out of that and actually get some information about what would create value so that they can take action on that. I'm sorry, but what's what's FTE? Full time employment. Full, full oh, for the, time oh. employment. Oh. for the man. <laughs> I've heard of such people. The man and I don't get along, so <laughs> I don't think about that. Yeah. So you're asking how they can create more value in their full time job, or how they could break into consulting, offering more value than they currently do now. Actually, I see this also in the freelance world where, uh, you know, a lot of us starting out, we just kind of get hired for our hands, not our brains. And the whole idea of creating more value is using your brain <laughs> to think up new value and, you know, make it so. So if you're more in that sort of, maybe you're working for an agency and they're just saying, okay, here's, here's the PSDs, turn this into a WordPress site. How can you start to, you know, just break out of that world of being given a set of specs and expected to shut up and do the work? You know what I mean? Because I know that's takes- the question a lot of our listeners have right now. Yeah, I can, I can say that uh, it was kind of frustrating when I was with some of the clients. Yeah, they just hired me because they just needed another pair of hands to write another set of code. And it was really hard to actually get in and add any more value than that because they didn't want my uh, they didn't want my input on any of that stuff. Yeah, they just see you as the hired help. But at the same time, I've done some things, for example, on kind of a skunkworks level, which is, you know, it's not necessarily officially sanctioned work but you add stuff in that has value. So one of the ways that I did that uh, in one past job was I set up continuous integration. And then our rate of bugs went down because we were catching them before we deployed them. Another one was uh, when we moved our Git in-house and set up a whole bunch of custom uh, scripting that ran on the Git repository that we really couldn't do in GitHub. And so that solved a whole bunch of problems and made our stakeholders a little bit more comfortable because it wasn't on a third-party system, though GitHub has mostly been pretty reliable. But, you know, there are things like that that I've done where there's sort of things that you can add onto the process that once you get enough other people in the group using them, then you start to really benefit from them. Another, Another thing that I did was just on my machine, I set up an IRC server. And so we would all get on and chat in there on the IRC server. And after a few months, it became pretty apparent that it was now a central piece of our development process. And so it got moved off onto its own server and was maintained by the IT team. And so there are a lot of things that you can do inside of your full-time job or full-time organization, or even as a contractor, as part of a team, to increase the ability of your team to communicate or to get work done or to reduce bugs or to add some other value to the code that will make things go better. Yeah, that reminds me of when I was working for uh, an agency that produced a lot of content for Microsoft. And so around the time uh, Windows 2008 server came out, um, that was when Microsoft added virtualization at the operating system level. So I took an interest in that and I kind of became the in-house Hyper-V guy. Like I, I set up a wiki and, you know, just started contributing anything to it that I thought would be helpful to anybody else that needed to understand this new feature of the operating system. So 
it was sort of looking for a knowledge gap and just kind of volunteering to fill that in. And I, I wonder if that technique would not also apply to other people in like an FTE situation or a, you know, you're a pair of hands, not a brain situation. Well, so thinking back to my one full-time job as an adult or one full-time, you know, like W W2 job. (laughs) One hit wonder. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, enterprise, enterprise like level job. There were a number of things that, you know, I could tell similar, you know, stories like Chuck and Philip just said, you know, where I just took an interest in this thing and I was basically utterly bored by the thing I was supposed to be doing, which I could finish relatively quickly. And what am I going to do with the rest of my day? Well, I'll, I'll find problems and solve them. But so the thing to point out, I don't know if you guys found this to be true or not true in your situations, but that did not translate at all into an increase in my income, even though I was, that's why I eventually left. Cause I was like, I'm being super clever over here and no one's paying attention. <laughs> you know, I'm like making all these amazing things and no one cares. And that, that's how I felt at the time. In retrospect, it was probably a little less amazing than I thought. And no one was actually asking me to do it. So when it came raise time, they were like, yeah, that's really cool. You did all that stuff, but no one really asked you to do it. So here's your cost of living increase. And I, I just thought, you know, so, so if the, if I think the bigger question is, or if it's not, I don't think we've explicitly said, how do you take a full-time job and the experience you can get from a full-time job and turn that into value that you can then reclaim some of, you know, it's like pretty, I don't think it's too hard to look around at your place of employment and find inefficiencies that you can improve upon. But how do you turn that into, you know, a free gig? Like maybe you go solo or maybe you create a product on the side. And if I think back to my stint in corporate America, there was one particular, there are two, two things that I built that certainly would have had applications outside of the particular business. One of them was a time tracking, a piece of time tracking software. Another one was a sort of like a very highly specific content management system for creating print catalogs. And if I felt like going in that direction, I could have probably productized either one of those. I didn't, that wasn't what I wanted to do, but I would think that, that, that certainly could have been an approach. And the other thing that I could imagine is while I was inside of that business, I had, you know, sort of insider access to a big company. And if I was really smart about going out on my own, which I was not at all, I basically picked the companies I applied to based on their logo. (laughs) But (laughs) if I was really, if I was back there now, if I could, if I could talk to the me of 2001 or whatever it was, I would say, dude, Okay, go. You have access to people walking around the halls that you could just pull aside or ask to go to coffee and just ask them a couple of questions. And these are people who are maybe one or two notches down from the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I could have easily had conversations with extremely high powered people that would have been greatly beneficial to my future consulting business. And I just completely screwed the pooch on that one. I totally missed that opportunity. Uh, the other thing was I could have had conversations with people who were even closer to my level, like my manager and manager, uh, maybe above that, people who were IT buyers inside of a large organization and asked questions about, you know, how does procurement work? Like, really, what are the most important things to have to sort of come in? Like, let's say I was going to let's say I was going to come into this organization as a consultant to do the same thing I'm doing now. What would it take to convince you that that would be a good idea? 
And these are people I had a close relationship with. And I'd be like, look, I'm leaving. Tell me how to do this as a consultant at other companies like this. And they would have told me, but I didn't even think to ask. So the same, same thing. It's like, it's like, what are the expensive problems that, and how would I sort of present them and market them to people like you at other companies? John, I think you're totally right that first of all, I'm guessing that people in those management jobs would be delighted to have someone to tell about all the problems they're having that they wish they could fix, mm-hmm. right? Because their jobs as managers are basically to try to fix problems and try to get through things. If someone's coming to them and saying, listen, I'd love to hear what the sort of messes I can clean up, they, they might really like that a lot. Mm-hmm. But in addition, Chuck, you mentioned, like you set up this wiki, you set up sort of information center. And I'm, I certainly saw this in places that I worked full-time also, where people become sort of the go-to people, right, uh, for certain topics, you just become the, the in-house expert on something. And if you become the in-house expert on something, you're going to see a lot of these patterns show up of what problems are people trying to solve repeatedly. And over time, you're not only going to become an expert in solving those problems, you're going to see what problems people have and how to get to them. And you're going to be able to fix them faster than anyone else. And you're going to know that this problem exists when people don't even know it exists. And I'm guessing if some sort of problem, and I'm not saying like this particular button doesn't work well on the elevator, Right. But something that actually is a, a, a real business problem that people are having all the time, it probably will exist in other companies, too. And that's a good opportunity for you to go check the market and start to do that you know, as a first consulting possibility. My first big mentor in business got his start as the phone support guy at a help desk. And he knew exactly, you know, for a piece of software and he knew exactly what problems everybody he knew exactly what was wrong with the software. And he wrote a book about exactly those questions that he answered over and over and over. And it was a gigantic hit. It became like the Bible of that industry. And it just goes back to that thing of like talking to actual people and finding out what their actual problems are. And, you know, if you become an expert on this thing, it'll certainly translate outside of the organization. By the way, I mean, I, I see that all the time in my consulting work. So just in the last year, I guess it was about a year ago, maybe eight months ago, I did a project helping a company set up um, high availability for PostgreSQL. And then about two months ago, I had another company ask me to do that. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And last week, I had someone email me about that. I was like, hmm, I see a trend here. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I should turn this into some sort of product. Then actually, I decided, no, this is actually not something I really want to do that much because it's a real pain. So I decided to sort of not productize it. But um, I think I heard someone say, I can't remember when or who, but if three people come to you with the same problem, that's probably a, a business opportunity that you should look into. And so if that's happening at your work, if it's happening with clients, I think it's definitely a one way to go, one way to think about it. This is probably just the marketer in me speaking, but I think it can be helpful when you do come up. Let's say you have that happen. You see this pattern where there's a, a persistent problem across multiple organizations and you think, OK, I've got a solution for that or a, at least a partial solution. Uh, why don't I package that up and create a new form of value like we're talking about here, I think naming it can be helpful. I think uh, ideas travel better when they have little convenient verbal handles attached to them. And that works, you know, in positioning and in lots of other areas of marketing. So I think that coming up with a a name for it that's like, you know, your own made up name for it can actually be helpful. I did this with what I keep calling my minimum viable funnel. And I think having that name, even though it's, I mean, it's sort of a play on minimum viable product. So that helps because MVP has a lot of name recognition. So my MVF concept is, you know, kind of benefits from that, rides on the coattails, if you will, of, of that. 
And I think it just helps to, to have a, have a name so that people can tuck it away in an empty spot in their mind and bring it out when they need it, which is hopefully when they're referring business to you. It gives a convenient shorthand for word of mouth and for the, like you said, the, the pigeonholing of it. Yeah. So like, and, and never mind practical things like Googling for it later. And, you know, how do we, who's the MVF guy? And, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, another example that's not mine is, is, uh, Kurt Elster, a friend of the show, Kurt Elster, who, you know, came up with a, a sort of packaging of, a service that really cut out a lot of stuff that would normally happen as a part of a website redesign. It just focused on the high value parts of that process. So he gave that the name website rescues. And I think it's very powerful that he is sort of the de facto owner of that name. I guess I tried to do that with uh, Micronars, but uh, somebody beat me to it. <laughs> it wasn't one of us, was it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, somebody Some else, somebody else registered the name Micronar.com and put up a little landing page about how it was going to revolutionize webinars, which I think it could. But uh, yeah, that dude beat me to it, which is fine. <laughs> oh, I want to have a look at it now. Micronar.com. Spelled N-A-R, not N-A-U-R, like yes, Josh, Jonathan, it. and I prefer uh, to spell it. <laughs> he didn't spell it like the dinosaur. N-A-U-R There's is like a dinosaur, right? Yeah, I like the more whimsical spelling. Besides, it demonstrates the value because it because it, <laughs> it it adds you to the picture. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> And I, I just want to say, I know a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners are kind of groaning right now when they, you know, when they think about marketing in general. But I mean, uh, another good example of this is uh, what was that Linux vulnerability that Heartbleed. came out? Uh, Heartbleed. The the marketing. You look at the marketing on that. They didn't really need to give that uh, a catchy name, but they did, and I think it really helped increase awareness of of a very serious issue. Absolutely. It's a, a good example of what yeah. I'm talking about. How, how many major vulnerabilities in software can you name? Right. <laughs> and and yeah, I just blurted it, it out off the top of my head. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't and, know whose idea that was to give it a, like a, a human type of name as opposed to whatever code they give when they assign them, but it was really, really smart. And that yeah. logo of like the heart dripping blood <laughs> that that really brought it home and i think the name was kind of arbitrary i don't think it was like conceptually related to no, the nature was. of the bug oh was it, it was, okay yeah the, the bug was related to something called a heartbeat oh okay it was bleeding information so it was like clever on top of it yeah. so it really made sense yeah but, i mean think about how the fact that you know tropical storms and hurricanes are named it's simple and it, it maybe seems a little cheesy even but it's worth thinking about if you're coming up with something that really is uniquely your own is to, is to name it. Yeah. I had this conversation with a student the other day. I was like, he's coming up with this thing. And I was like, I don't know what to name it, but you need to come up with a name for it so that you can talk about it. Cause you're going to be talking about it a lot and you're not going to want to say a sentence every time you talk about this service and the name, it doesn't have to be clever. It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, have a TM after it. But it needs to be something that you can have a conversation at least where Nick D, another friend of the show, does does this with his products. And he doesn't it's not really a cleverness thing. He just gives them a name and that allows him to, I don't know, create things like readable URLs and have conversations with customers about 
this particular product. So he have like his consultancy is called draft. So he'll have draft whatever draft revise draft foundation. And I was saying that to this person, I was like, you know, I don't know if we're going to come up with a clever name for this. If you do, then great. But if you don't, then when you are talking about it with your first few like beta customers and people you're using your hypothesis with, listen to the language they use to describe it back to you. And there'll probably be a, a very evocative word in there that is probably the name. It's probably the name you should use because it's the natural one. And if it's so common that it, you know, if it's like something super just like crazy common, like performance, performance improvement, you know, something like that, you're going to want to make it a little bit more specific, like maybe draft speed or, you know, something like that. But I couldn't agree more with the naming thing uh, because it's just that's how your people's brains work. Like they can't if they can't talk about it easily, they're not going to talk about it. By the way, I, I mean, mentioning Postgres again or PostgreSQL, the fact that those developers chose such a horrible name is a huge impediment. Like I found every conversation I have with a potential client about Postgres, they're like, post post what? How, how do you spell yeah. that? And it, it knocks us off track for easily five minutes. And basically, I've just come to say, it's a really horrible name for a really terrific database. Yes, they made a mistake. Let's just go on. <laughs> Yeah, I, MySQL's got the same problem. I to this day I don't know if it's supposed to be pronounced MySQL or MySQL, and I I find myself saying it differently to the point where I don't even want to talk about it because it's I'm my, embarrassed to say it. It's MySQL, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, like GIF GIF became funny, but but no one's building a business on top of that. I don't think. I totally agree. Like if you're, it's the I call it the Oprah test. You know, if if you can't picture, oh, this is probably kind of dating myself now she probably has been on tv for a decade but oprah <laughs> oprah used to be this really popular daytime talk show host that some older people might be aware of and she would introduce people as they came out you know and it, just like any other talk show she, and i would say can you imagine oprah introducing you as this thing that you're trying to tell me is your tagline and they'd be like no I'm like well, then come up with one that oprah can say like throw mm -hmm. her a bone you know what i mean and it, it translates, I think, down to every, you know, a dinner party where someone's trying to tell their friend about your thing. Like, make it sound cool. Make them feel cool saying it. Like, they know about this cool thing, like Heartbleed. It sounds kind of cool. You know, make it sound, I could do a whole rant on this. I think Philip's 100% right. I think naming matters big time. And, you know, if at all possible, make your thing seem concise and clever and cool and, and make people want to say it. Don't make people not want to say it. Right. Like right. my SQL. You can just pronounce it Oracle nowadays. It's okay. <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of them. Plenty of them. How do we get back to the topic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of other ways that we can create value for our customers. Look, it's listening to talking to them and listening. Yeah. I, it's bottom line. It's like, and once you have that, that's the beginning. And then you package it up in a way that they can consume. Like if they can only take small bites, give it to them in small bites. If they're ravenous, give them a vat. But One it boils down to talking to them and actually listening. Yeah, I can tell that uh, there's one thing that a lot of people really don't think about that you probably ought to be doing that they're not going to ask you for. I mean, there are things like documentation and, you know, a lot of other things that probably ought to come with whatever you're doing for them that, yeah, they're not going to think to ask and you're not going to think of as value adds that are also value adds for allowing you to 
pass it off to somebody else or to refresh your memory when you come back to the project or anything else like that. If they wind up hiring a staff that you can add to it. But yeah, I'm, I'm not thinking of anything else other than just, yeah, what you're saying, Jonathan, talk to them, find out what, where their issues are and yeah, find that painful problem they have and make it better. And if they trust you already, and if they like working with you, they are going to be pleased as punch that you are trying to find more ways to help them. Oh yeah. And then one little detail about that, and this sort of gets back to something we've talked about before, but a lot of people kind of start out avoiding the topic of like what's broken. So the first time you bring that up, you may want to sort of, I don't know, just kind of wrap it in some context so they they know why you're you're dealing with them differently. And that could be as simple as um, saying something like, I find your business fascinating and I want to learn more about it because I just want to get better at helping you. So is it okay if I ask some questions that, you know, maybe we've never discussed before? Just like uh, something simple like that can be all it takes. But I, I guess I would call people to try to navigate that transition from being hands to trying to become brains uh, some, as gracefully as you can. Yeah, I'll second that. I've never even been that explicit about it. It's always been something that a, a trend or a pattern that I've sort of secretly noticed or something that someone volunteered in a unguarded moment. I probably should, but I don't have a process in place where I ask for that kind of information the way that you might with, you know, when you're getting to the end of a project and you have a process in place to ask for referrals or testimonials or something like that. I've never put one in place explicitly for myself where I say, okay, at a point like this, it would be a good time to just go fishing for problems, for expensive problems with this particular customer. I don't know if it's that I've never had. No, I'm sure it's not that I never had to. I think I probably could have a list a mile long of stuff that particular types of companies had as problems that I could help with, or at least package in a different way. Although it's been on the back of my mind the whole time we've been talking that I would not tend to turn around and sell those things to the client who gave me the idea because the clients that I work with most closely are already kind of at my Mercedes like top tier option. And I don't really have something higher to offer them. So it would be a down sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably the ideas that I would get from that would be for people who either don't trust me enough to hire me for my top tier service, or I don't have time available for them to hire me for that, but I'd like to offer them something that to get them out of the jam that they're in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's an, so now you've got me thinking, Philip, so I should probably bake that into my process somewhere. Yeah. And I guess the one thing that maybe we could bring out that's been implicit that we can make explicit is the probably the the least valuable forms of new value come purely from your own mind. <laughs> so, you know, ideas that you think are cool have to pass the the client values it test. And it's, it's a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's okay that if that turns out to be successful, that's awesome. But doing that without validating or without having a conversation with a number of potential clients is likely to lead you to, you know, sinking a bunch of time and effort in something that goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. How do I know this? I've done it myself. Me too. A lot of times. <laughs> it's, I call it the hammer looking for a nail, mm-hmm. you know, service. <laughs> More like hammer looking for a thumb. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
But really, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to exaggerate how much these conversations, how much these discussions can, can breed. I mean, I had this guy, I, so I just talked this class in regular expressions last week. And there was a guy there who had a fair amount of experience with it. And he had been to some of my classes before in various things. And like, he's a great guy. And he, he told me, you know, I appreciated the class. And then like, you know, often I'm just sort of rushing to get out of there, but he had stuck, stuck around and he wanted to talk to me a little bit about the class. And basically the fact that I stuck around for two or three minutes, he said, you know what you could really do? Because I've sort of taken all your classes, but I'd like to take more. Here's what you should offer, and I will come to it, and lots of other people will come to it. And mm. it, it was a, it was brilliant. And basically, it was just because I sort of took those few minutes to hang around, talk to him, hear what he had to say, that it gave me a, a whole new potential model for teaching that I hadn't tried before in companies or tried to pitch to them. And I've really been thinking about it a lot in the last week or two since I spoke to him. And I think if I turn around and bring it to companies, they'll be really excited. Yeah, I get it all the time in my coaching Slack room. At least once a week, somebody's like, you know what you should offer? This thing about pricing or this thing about how to do proposals, like this specific thing that's just focused on, like an ebook specifically on writing proposals. It happens. It, there, I, there's so many of them. I barely even keep track of them anymore. I just need to go, like, just wait for a new one, you know? <laughs> Because there's this, it's an environment that I sort of inadvertently create. I mean, I created it on purpose, but it has this added side effect that I'm constantly in communication with my exact target market. And we chat about everything from the news to the stuff that we're actually supposed to be working on. So there's like a lot of that sort of extemporaneous conversation that goes on. And, you know, it's like a safe environment where people can just say whatever they think. And there have been a few ideas thrown out where it's like, geez, somebody, should, I'm, I, I'm not going to do it, but someone should. Is there anybody who wants to do this? There are like so many ideas that come out of there that, that there aren't even enough people to execute them all. So, uh, I, I, it's just another, just piling on the, the dead horse of enabling conversation. And maybe a group conversation maybe is is a factor that we haven't talked about too much. But having a group conversation, I think, might surface some of these things more quickly and validate them more quickly than if you're going, you know, one to 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 one. Yeah, I haven't ever can, tried anything can, like that in a group. I like that idea. Yeah. Can Can you say more about why you think that has some unique properties? Uh, yes, because you immediately get all sides of the the angle. If the if the community is set up in a way that there are people who have different opinions and can articulate them, you know, so you, you basically have a group that gets along and respects each other and is smart, you know, whatever. They're smart about the thing. I'm not saying like they're geniuses, but just like they're smart about their thing. And you're all sort of in a generally the same focus, but maybe take different approaches to executing it. And someone will have a air quotes, great idea. And I think there's a difference. There's a, I, I don't think, I know there's a difference between a great idea and an actual opportunity. You know, like <laughs> great idea is like, Oh, you know, what would be great if you, if you could do this thing, it'd be so great. <laughs> and I, that used to be me big time. You know, it used to be, you know, it'd be so awesome if, you know, I can't think of one now. It'd be so funny if I could, but just, it's just a dumb idea. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a great idea, but no one's going to buy it. Yeah. So is it really a great idea? Maybe, you know, if you're going to go off and do it, or you're going to do a Kickstarter or something and prove that people are going to buy it. But I am super skeptical of that scratch your own itch stuff. I don't buy it at all. I think it's a super huge cop out. 
And it makes it very difficult for you to be an expert because you're probably going to sell to people exactly like you and you're going to sell them something that you think they all need. But really, they're like, wait a second, who are you? You know, because you're all this basically the same person. You know, you've got so many similarities that you've got to sort of it's going to be tougher to prove yourself and make them trust you because it's got that thing like, well, what makes you so smart? I'm smarter than you. But if you if you are talking to a community of people who are smart at a different thing than you're smart at, then all of a sudden you're almost by definition an expert at the thing you're smart at because they don't even care about that. Th- you know, they care about the results of that thing, but they don't even care about it. So anyway, so if you have a community of people that have sort of divergent backgrounds and different approaches, uh, you will almost instantly see if an idea has got legs or not, if it's worth looking into. I mean, like within 60 seconds. You know, if there if there's like five people in a room and you say, oh, I got this great idea and you bang it out, somebody will instantly shoot it down with like, well, how are you even going to deliver that? And you're like, oh, yeah, how would I deliver that? And you think like you think about it and like maybe you work it out and then somebody's like, well, doesn't that require that you'd have access to like the this stranger's private code base? Like, do you think people are immediately going to just trust you to see their code base or do operations on their production database? It's like, oh, yeah, good point. Well, what could I do about that? And then somebody will chime in with like, oh, well, here's a solution to that problem. And it's uh, I can't describe the underlying mechanism of why it works or how it works, but I've seen it work so many times that I promise you it works. It probably has a lot to do with assembling the right group of people, but you know, I just did it in the PCR Slack room before we started the show. I was like, oh, I'm trying to come up with a name for this webinar and it's something like this, but I feel it doesn't feel right. And then, you know, a bunch of people weighed in and it was like, Oh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's perfect. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like, there's like group think I think is used normally as a bad term, sort of a negative term. But I think if you get the right community of people, it's a good thing. It can very quickly, it's like an instantaneous focus group, like a good instantaneous focus group. And if you set that up for your customers, which I've seen done where you create, you know, as a consultant, you can create a sort of a round table mastermind type of thing where quarterly this group of players in, in the industry that you're in, but are from different backgrounds, you assemble them to kind of brainstorm for all of their mutual benefit, then you get this happening very quickly at a high level. You know, you get someone from finance, you get someone from retail, you get someone from government, you get someone from healthcare, and they're all interested in mobile, you know, if, if it's MySpace. And then we go and say, all right, we're going to have this sort of, sort of like brainstorming, like how, how could we all intersect or how could two of us intersect in a way that would create, unlock a huge amount of value, you know, in between the industries. And I, I've seen this work in practice. It's very powerful. So you mentioned that, like the mastermind, because I have a mastermind on Friday mornings with a few other consultants. And we've been doing it for, I think, like three years now. And just this past week, last week, I think two of us had problems or issues. And it was only because of the dynamics of the group and only because we sort of ground through it and everyone contributed something that we really got um, some fantastic solutions for people. Mm. Yeah, it is a minefield because a lot of these sort of groups just go sour. But man, when you get one that works, it really works. It's a huge accelerant on this value creation concept. (laughs) And what you said before, by the way, about the, oh, I've got a great idea. This has probably happened to you guys all the time. But someone says, I have this idea for a startup 
why doesn't someone do? And they come up with this idea that would never be a business or that no one could really <laughs> do. And and I, I hadn't really thought about that that happens in the consulting world as well, that you can come up with these consulting ideas or productized ideas. They're just product ideas. They're not necessarily startups that are just complete duds that people get really excited about. Yeah, I'm guilty. I've created two or three SaaS. I've, I've written or co-written at least three SaaSes that I was sure were going to be a huge hit. And then as soon as I launched them, they just completely flopped and were immediately obvious to me that they were dumb. <laughs> Because, like, instead of doing all that customer research first, we went straight to code, built the thing, tried to get someone to use it. I get the first three questions completely pierced the entire concept, hmm. you know, and like, hmm, maybe I should have had that talk first. <laughs> <laughs> so if it, you do it once or twice, or maybe it takes three times if you're dense like me, then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to go ahead and maybe make a prototype and then talk to someone first. But so pro so if anything, prototype your service, write a sales page, throw it in front of a, you know, to test your hypothesis, call up a few people, email a few people in your industry, say, Hey, you know, I really respect what you've done in the business. Uh, you don't know me from a hole in the wall, but I'm thinking about starting this business or creating this product, I'd love it if you could just sort of either, you know, just give me some feedback on it, either shoot it down or tell me it's a good idea or somewhere in between. And you'll get one out of 10 people will agree to that meeting. Yep. All right. Well, should we get to picks? Sure. All right, Philip, what are your picks? I have a few. I was just reminded how awesome lead pages is today as I was setting up an A-B test for a landing page that I use. This, I, I think, has value because, I mean, this is a larger thing, but I think the role of websites is changing, and I see them less as, like, this monolith thing and more as kind of a collection of landing pages. It might be an interesting future topic for the show. And there's a ton of really good landing page pages creators out there. Uh, Lead Pages is one that works on a SaaS model. And I just, I want to pick it because I, I think they do exactly what they say on the tin and they have uh, pretty great support and they get a lot of things right. So that's my pick. Another one that I may have picked before, I'm not sure, is a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. This is a very popular book, so you've probably heard of it before. And the reason I want to bring it to the attention of anyone listening is because it, I think what's great about this book is, well, first of all, you, you may think, oh, this is not applicable to me because the book is really written for people in a larger business environment. I think it's applicable to solo freelancers and small shops because it gives you a new way to think about categorizing that's not a one-dimensional thing. Like you, you might be think, used to thinking of yourself as, well, we're, we're Rails developers. And really there's a lot more ways you can, a lot more dimensions to how you think about your own business and how you position that business in the marketplace. And Blue Ocean Strategy is a really, gives you a really good tool called a strategy canvas for sort of mapping out your market position. It's a well-written book. It's like most business books, longer than it needs to be, but oh well it's still worth a read. So that's my second pick. My third pick for this week is one that I've probably picked before also, but I want to bring it up because of today's discussion. It's called Lean Customer Development by Cindy Alvarez. It provides a really actionable, easy to use protocol for talking to people to get information about what would create value for them. And for that reason, it's it's totally worth reading. It's unlike most business books, not longer than it needs to be. And uh, just a really fast, 
read with a lot of value. So those are my three picks for this week. All right, Ruben, what are your picks? So I've got almost like an anti-pick for this week. So you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with the game, board game, Settlers of Catan. And uh, they had for a number of years now an online version I think playkatan, I think it was, .com. And I would go there on occasion and play games, and it was kind of fun. And they announced a few months ago that they were going to be moving over to a new platform. And it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to start in December. And they said, okay, it's not quite ready. We're going to do it now in January. In January, I think it was like 18th or 19th or something, they shut down the old one in favor of the new one, which was one of the worst pieces of software I've ever encountered in my entire life. You have never seen such vitriol <laughs> online as was unleashed at this company for having a version of Catan that was just like unplayable, terrible, and ugly and everything. And I think it's a sort of a, this should be a case study somewhere for how to tick off your users who are paying money, who are happy to pay you money, who want to keep doing so, and yet you <laughs> just don't pay attention to them in any way, shape, or form. It was staggering to see the anger that was at these people in any event after like two weeks of being beaten up by everyone in the Catan online community they said okay how about while we're still in the early access phase we bring back the old version which they have done in any event i think it's worth if you want sort of a uh, a lesson in how not to treat your customers it's worth going to katanuniverse.com signing up on the forums and seeing what people said <laughs> and or even trying to play the game online and take that as a lesson in your work. Do not tick off your customers, especially when they are, it's almost a cult that they have developed into. Anyway, end of pick, end of soapbox for this week. Jonathan, what are your picks? I am going to pick two things, really. One is that I've started doing webcasts on uh, Crowdcast, which is so far a wonderful platform that I'm very much enjoying uh, for doing webinar-like presentations. Uh, but I think we've picked that before. So what I want to let people know about is my last month's webinar, which is free, is how to increase your income without hiring junior developers, which is an, about an hour, uh, 90 minutes of presentation and Q&A about moving from hourly billing to value pricing. And the next webinar or webcast, if you will, is coming up in March on the 16th. And that one is going to be about pricing and it's called how to price your services without leaving money on the table. And that will be about pricing psychology and how it applies to freelancers and consultants uh, and the services that they offer. Uh, and the last one is that I want to let people know, the, the freelancer show audience know, that I soft launch a new product that uh, you can get first or early access to. You can get to the front of the line uh, because I haven't officially launched it yet and I'm not planning on officially launching it uh, for uh, at least before you hear this. So if you've looked at my coaching and you don't, you know, you think it's now's a good time or it's a little too expensive, uh, you can now have a one-on-one -on -one call with me to just sort of get whatever questions that you need answered, answered in a very short order. And uh, the calls are uh, unlimited time. You can just we schedule a call, schedule as much time as you think you need. And uh, it's just a single price for that. So if you go to expensiveproblem.com slash call, you can set that up and sort of get right to the front of the line because I'm sure it's going to be very busy once I do officially launch it. And that's it for me. 
All right. Um, I guess it's my turn. I've got a few picks here. I also really like Crowdcast. I have to say the only thing that has not really worked out for me is the recordings are low quality. I mean, you can still read the slides and everything, but they're not HD. So my picks, the first one I, I'm going to pick is a product I'm actually using on devchat.tv. If you go over there, you'll see a, a thing sl- slide down and it'll say, hey, if you want the top 10 episodes of the Freelancer Show, then enter your email address and you can have it. So if you go to freelancershow.com, you'll see that. Um, I'm using a product called SumoMe, and uh, you can find it at sumome.com. Uh, they are awesome. They've got a whole bunch of other tools in there too. One of the ones I use quite a bit is the analytics tool. And what I can do there is I can actually open up Google Analytics without actually leaving the page and see what my traffic has been and things like that. And it puts a badge on there for me so that I can see what the traffic has been for today and how many people are on right now and stuff like that. Really, really handy tool. But the thing that's really interesting about it is that I put the um, the little slide down thing on devchat.tv on February 12th, which was 11 days ago. And in the last 11 days, I've had almost 400 email signups to my email list. So wow. I'm just, I'm really happy with the results on that. It comes out to just under 40 uh, signups per day. So um, if you want to get those emails, you can. And if you want to check out SumoMe, you can go to sumome.com. I'm also getting ready to gear up on the devchat.tv blog. So if you're interested in that, you can go to blog.devchat.tv. I should have a few posts up by the time this goes live, and you can check that out. And finally, on the mailing list itself, I've been emailing everybody on the list to let people know when I'm going to be in a particular city so that uh, we can go hang out. So if you're interested in that, then just go jump on the list, uh, sign up for episode updates or anything like that. You can also do that at uh, freelancershow.com. And we can check that, we can check that out. I'm definitely going to Las Vegas, Chicago and Chicago this year. I might wind up in London or Kansas City or San Francisco. So if you're interested and you're in those areas, then let me know and uh, we'll make sure that we can find some time to get together. And those are my picks. Anything else before we wrap up? I can add on that notion of the welcome mat. Those seem to be performing quite well right now which means they will not be in a couple of years <laughs> as people yeah. tire of that. But there are some alternatives if you don't want to pay. Sumomi is free, but there's also a paid tier. Right. Uh, Thrive Leads is a WordPress plugin uh, that does has similar functionality, and it's a one-time thing versus a recurring thing. Uh, of course, you don't have to pay for the, the high-end Sumomi version, but if you want to really customize the welcome mat, you do have to pay that. Yes. So I just wanted to add that as a side note just to get options there. That's true. And if you're doing what I'm doing, which is that since all the shows are under devchat.tv, I had different paths that I needed different mats to show up on. That's a paid feature. So, yeah, I am paying for it. Mm-hmm. It's a good value. Yep. For sure. Yeah, but uh, it seems like the core of the market of marketing these days, for quite a while, in fact, has been email. So, if you want to do quality uh, marketing, you need a strong email list. So, that's what I'm after right now. You won't get any argument from me there. <laughs> all right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you all for coming, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.